turn to 1 Kings chapter 12. 1 Kings chapter 12. We are continuing um, our look at the need to practice discernment in music. And when I started into uh, this theme, I did not anticipate that we'd be turning to this text um, in this series. But last uh, week, in my Old Testament survey class here at Easley Christian School, we have talked a great deal about um, the establishment of the monarchy in Israel under King Saul initially, and then David, and then Solomon, before there was a division of that kingdom of Israel into the two kingdoms, the northern ten tribes being known as Israel and the southern two tribes being known as Judah. But the Jeroboam, if you're in 1 Kings 12 now in verse number 25, the Jeroboam that is mentioned in verse 25 is the leader that split the northern ten tribes off from Solomon's son Rehoboam. And this is the Jeroboam that led in the forming of that northern state of Israel with its new capital ultimately in Samaria. But what we're going to read of in this passage tonight is the institution of some changes in the worship of this now new nation. And I want to go ahead and read the passage starting with verse 25 and read down through verse 33 so we have the big picture in view and then come back to zero in on a particular focus. Notice in 1 Kings 12, 25, Then Jeroboam built Shechem in Mount Ephraim and dwelt therein, and went out from thence and built Peniel. And Jeroboam said in his heart, Now shall the kingdom return to the house of David, if this people go up to do sacrifice in the house of the Lord at Jerusalem. Then shall the heart of this people turn again unto their Lord, even unto Rehoboam, king of Judah. And they shall kill me, and go again to Rehoboam, king of Judah. Whereupon the king took counsel, and made two casts of gold, and said unto them, It is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Behold thy gods, O Israel, which brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. And he set the one, referring to those calves, he set the one calf in Bethel, and the other he put in Dan. And this thing became a sin, for the people went to worship before the one, even unto Dan. And he made a house of high places, and made priests of the lowest of the people, which were not of the sons of Levi. And Jeroboam ordained a feast in the eighth month, on the fifteenth day of the month, like unto the feast that is in Judah. And he offered upon the altar. So did he in Bethel, sacrificing unto the calves that he had made. And he placed in Bethel the priests of the high places which he had made. So he offered upon the altar which he had made in Bethel the fifteenth day of the eighth month, even in the month which he had devised of his own heart, and ordained a feast unto the children of Israel. And he offered upon the altar and burnt incense. And I would just have you go back in particular to verse 30. We're told right in the middle of this text that Jeroboam's new and innovative worship led people to sin. And I, I want you just to see verse 30. The thing 
You see that the thing became a sin. For the people went to worship. And I know I'm just catching a middle even of a phrase. But I want you to notice they were worshiping. And yet they were doing what at the same time? They were worshiping and yet sinning at the same time. It's possible to even be worshiping in the name of Jehovah God and yet sinning at the very same time. And from time to time, it is good for us to be reminded that one of the broad themes in the scripture is that not all that calls itself worship is actually acceptable to God. All the way back in Genesis chapter 4, Cain and Abel were both instructed regarding the sacrifice that they were to offer to God in worship, and they both brought a sacrifice, but Cain decided to get innovative with his. He brought of the fruit of the ground. After all, I mean, he's a farmer. This is more convenient. This is more personal. It's more connected to him. So he brought what was more connected to him in an act of worship. But Genesis 4 and verse 5 says that unto Cain and to his offering, God had not respect. And then added, and Cain was very wroth. God didn't accept his expression of worship. He got upset with God. But God's response to Cain was basically to say, don't get upset with me. You're the one who disobeyed and violated my word. I told you what to bring. You got creative and innovative. And yes, you say it's so personal, but, but it was disobedient. It was worship, but it was sin. In Leviticus chapter 10, on what appears to be the first day of corporate worship in Israel around the newly constructed tabernacle, the sons of Aaron, the priest, offered what is described there as a strange fire, and, and this is the explanation, that the Lord had not instructed them to offer. And when they did, a fire came out from the altar and took the lives of those two young men, themselves priests, and the son of Aaron, the high priest. Because while they offered, and again, got innovative and creative and, and, and went beyond what God had instructed, God took their lives. Just a couple of generations before our text for this evening, King David himself, a man after God's own heart, he was doing a good and right thing by bringing the Ark of the Covenant to the place of worship in Jerusalem. And the entire procession was a worship celebration. A good man with sincere motives doing a good thing with much preparation for it. But David did not follow some simple instructions about how the Ark was to be transported that after they put it on a cart, pulled by oxen, instead of being carried by staves that go through the corners on the shoulders of the priests, when they hit what appears to be something of a dry riverbed and rocky, and the, 
and the cart started to shake and the ark started to jostle, a young man by the name of Uzzah put out his hand to steady the ark and he lost his life. And again, it's interesting. The, the text tells us David got upset with God. And God said to David, and again, I'm putting it in a little more of our words. God essentially said to David, David, get up. This is not my fault. This is your fault. You didn't follow the instructions. And all of those illustrations, rather than from the text of Scripture, are, are communicating to us that there are situations where God is concerned about the methods. He is concerned about the means. He is about the he's concerned about the accessories. He's never accepted everything man claims to be worship in his name. It's never just been about the object. But he's always been concerned about the means and the accessories and the methods that men use in worship. And the passage before us today is also one of those pivotal points in religious history. The ones I've mentioned have been pivotal in Israel's history. We could go to some others that, that would be a little lesser known, but where there's scriptural commentary on them. But these are pivotal points, obviously. Cain and Abel and Leviticus 10 and, and this situation with David. And, and this is another one of those pivot points. And I do want to have you turn over to chapter 14. 1 Kings chapter 14 is wrapping up the reign of Jeroboam and forecasting the judgment that would come on Israel after him. And if you go into verse 16, 1 Kings 14 and verse 16, referring to God again, and God shall give Israel up because of the sins of who? Okay, Jeroboam, who did what? Okay, and now look at this. And who made Israel to sin. So Jeroboam didn't just sin himself. But Jeroboam did something that set in motion patterns that were going to influence generations of so-called worshipers under the influence of his leadership to themselves sin there are 21 times 21 times the bible makes reference to jeroboam who either made or caused israel to sin again for generations to come other disobedient kings will be described as walking in the ways of Jeroboam who caused Israel to sin. And on multiple occasions, specific reference is made to these actions right here in 1 Kings chapter 12. So this passage, in, in some respects, kind of sets the standard in terms of characteristics of what in the eyes of God would be unacceptable 
uh, of what would be sinful in worship. It's almost like, how, how would you know what <coughs> sinful worship is like? Go to 1 Kings chapter 12, because 21 times after this, the Bible's going to highlight Jeroboam, who did sin, and who caused Israel to sin. What Jeroboam is introducing is new. It's innovative. It's fresh. But in the eyes of God, it was sin. If you want to talk about terms that we would use, this this worship isn't going to be bound by old-fashioned, outdated traditions, forms, standards. Don't meet the needs of the new generation, the new conditions in the land. But while a great deal of time and energy and money was invested in getting all this up to date, it was worship that was still sin in the eyes of God. And so we want to ask in this passage, when, when is what is called worship by men actually called sin by God? Men are saying worship. God is saying sin. What are some of the highlighted characteristics of this new and sinful worship? And the first one, again, back in uh, chapter 12. The first characteristic of this new and sinful worship is that it violated clear Bible instruction. So when 1 Kings 12 and verse 28 says that the, king, that the king took counsel and made two calves of gold and said unto them, It is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Behold thy gods. That's the connection. These calves and gods, objects of worship. Okay, the king is violating a particular one of the Ten Commandments. And the commandment that the king is violating is not the first commandment. But he is violating and leading Israel in the violation of the second commandment. Okay, the first of the Ten Commandments forbids worshiping any other so-called God. And I say so-called in keeping with Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. There are, be, there are many that are called gods, but we know in reality there's one true God. All right? So the first commandment forbids worshiping any other so-called God. That is what King Ahab did. King Ahab of Israel, when he introduced the worship of Baal, or, or maybe the Hebrew expression, the Baals, into Israel, he was violating the first commandment. But again, that's not what Jeroboam is doing. He made... He made the changes that he made with the intent that people still worship in the name of Jehovah God, but now use those calves to do it. And he's violating the second commandment by doing so. That commandment says, Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image. Or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them, nor serve them. This is exactly what he's done. He's taken gold, 
He's made them into the image of calves, and he's calling on people to bow down before them. While still doing all of that in the name of Jehovah God. But this second commandment that forbids what Jeroboam has done is again occupied not with, think with me about what we've already noted. The second commandment is not occupied with the object of our worship. The object of our worship is what's addressed in which commandment? The first commandment. Thou shalt worship no other gods. This one, the second one, is about the means that you use in worship. The calves, in particular. Now, brethren, it does sound, it sounds, you know, really liberating. And in some cases, it can sound like especially spiritual. For someone to suggest we shouldn't worry about the means and accessories and styles of worship, we should just focus on the object. And sometimes when somebody gets up and says, be done with all this means and accessories and all, and let's get focused on the object, sometimes people say, that's an especially spiritual man right there. Or whoever it is that's saying it. It's almost like we stand in awe of that person. For just being focused, like how spiritual they are. All they care about is who. And, and I would even say to young people, and most of you are over there, so... I'll kind of turn over there a little bit. But I would just say that sometimes for a younger, new generation, um, you can almost really be thrilled that, that a leader is actually encouraging you to, to just focus on the object and stop worrying about all these other things, the style and the accessories and all that goes with it. But you need to recognize there's at least the possibility of a danger of the danger that they are influencing a whole new generation to take lightly and potentially even violate the second commandment. And in the case of Jeroboam, he led people to a clear violation of a biblical absolute about worship. And I'm not going to spend as much time here with making some applications because we're going to pick up some others uh, as we look at additional characteristics both tonight and next week, Lord willing. But I do want to come back to just raising this other biblical theme, and I intended to get to this another way, than, than, but it stands out right here. Does Romans 12.2 have any bearing on our worship experience? Okay. Do you know Romans 12.1 and 2? Right? <clears throat> Romans 12.1 says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. We're reminded about the mercies of God to us in Christ. And on the basis of that reminder... Present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your 
reasonable service. And we actually have talked about when we were there, Romans 12, that that last word of, <coughs> of verse number 1, which is your reasonable service, is actually a word that has within it the concept of worship. It's like your spiritual act of worship. So present your body a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable in God, which is your reasonable service. But then verse 2 exhorts us right on the heels of that to be not conformed to what? Be not conformed to this world. And again, when we are there, we, we noted even the voice of that exhortation, the voice of the verbs in the exhortation. We are to actively resist. Don't sit back passively is the idea. Don't allow yourself to be conformed, to be pressed into this world's mold. We are to actively resist being pressed into the mold of the world's values and agendas and priorities. When it calls us to be not conformed to this world, does that have any bearing on our worship experience? Should we, listen, should we be resisting the aura, the style, the accessories that create the sensation of, I'm just going to say it this way, that create the sensation of the world's worship experiences? Or should we try to copy them? I'm going to say that again. Should we resist the aura, style, and accessories that create the sensation of the world's worship experiences? Should we be trying to copy them or resist them? And brethren, the world's stage shows and concerts are worship experiences. They aren't worshiping the God of the Bible. But they are worshiping a God, and it is a God of unrestrained, uncommitted lust. And I would encourage just going out and seeking after him. But brother, every chance, every time somebody has said, you ought to look at this, you ought to look at this, or something has come across my path, and I see a world stage show and a world's concert, I think worship. But they are worshiping unrestrained, uncommitted lust. Now, should we model our worship after theirs? The same sights and sounds and sensations. <clears throat> or should we resist? I think Romans 12, 2 applies. Don't be conformed. Now, I'm going to uh, say something tonight because I'm talking about our church and I'm trying to help us understand some things. I'm going to say a little bit tonight. I'm going to say some more next week. <clears throat> Um, and I'm going to say something about the Gettys, Keith and Kristen Getty, and their, and their music, and the, and the whole, what they've opened up. And, um, and we're going to address one part of that tonight and then a, another couple next week from the text. <clears throat> but I would say this, that it is more and more rare to find a church that isn't using some of their music at least using some of it, if not have gone completely over to it. And it's rare to, 
even to find various colleges and camps that are, that are not using it as well. Now what people will talk about, and what some of you <coughs> that are familiar with it might talk about is doctrinal substance and even singability and certainly doctrinal substance and singability are helpful qualities and and you might have more that you would you would talk about that you're encouraged with and i understand we're going to rest new things we're going to we all wrestle with with all of it and try to sort it out I want to tell you in part, and I'm just going to start to make the argument tonight, but I want to tell you in part why I'm suspicious that more harm is being done than good in spite of doctrinal substance and singability. And and I'm going to start with this very matter that, that we're talking about, and that is resisting conformity to the worship of the world. <clears throat> and here's why. On January 14th of last year, Kristen Getty posted a video clip, a selfie video clip, of her and another woman at a Celine Dion concert on the Las Vegas Strip. And her selfie video, that's about 40 seconds, is of her and this other woman singing, really kind of screaming at the top of their lungs. A rock song that Celine Dion and her band is on the stage performing on the Las Vegas Strip. And the passion, the the, the caption, I'm sorry, read, and I've copied and pasted straight from it. The caption said, I went to see Celine Dion tonight with our good friend and backing vocalist on the Sing Tour, Shelly Justice. Growing up, learning how to sing, I would listen to Celine Dion for hours on end trying to copy her, even though I could never reach the very high notes with a laughing emoji. She has an incredible voice. So many of the songs, so she's talking about that concert. She sat there through the whole concert on the Vegas Strip. So many of the songs brought me back and reminded me how wonderful and powerful singing is. Now, I didn't know the song. And I actually had to listen enough just to catch what the name of the song was so I could go look at the song and look at the lyrics of the song. But brethren, the song, seriously, you, if you watch it yourself, you, you would not say Pastor Fuller is exaggerating. The song that they were screaming with delight to was a song that celebrates young premarital fornication. It talks about repeated fornication when they were young. That was the content of it. What I hadn't done to this week, <clears throat> though I had known about that before, was to actually look at the comments <coughs> under that. And some of the comments, of course, are praising her voice and saying, you know, you're better than Celine Dion and whatever. But some of the comments, here's a comment by one of her fans. One of her fans wrote and said, Kristen, you know 
don't you, that she stands for anti-Christian, anti-God values. I'm sorry, that's where don't, don't you. Kristen, you know she stands for anti-Christian, anti-God values, don't you? Another person wrote, another fan on her fan page wrote, anyone willing to tell her honestly, tell Celine Dion honestly, that she is going to be in hell. The, her song is, I don't want to be alone anymore, something like that. And this fan wrote, anyone willing to tell her honestly that she's going to be in hell all alone if she continues to refuse to repent of her sins? Another fan wrote, <coughs> pass, period, she hates America, period. That was the end. Now, my brethren, the only way, then, the only way you can be screeching with delight at a Celine Dion concert on the Vegas Strip in a very song that is celebrating fornication. The only way you can post and celebrate like she did is if you say style, aura, accessories are of no, con are of no consequence. In addition to the very text and obviously the, the spiritual state of the performer. When I say to you, I am suspicious about whether more harm is being done than good, that's a reason why I'm suspicious. And if you just say, boy, Pastor Fuller just seems to be like, don't go there. I'm telling you why. I'm like, mm, sure, I've heard the songs. I've been in pastor's conferences. Like I say, there's hardly a church that isn't singing them. <clears throat> and when I am, I don't sit there and boil inside. I try to be edified, okay, <clears throat> but when, if you sense, boy, he's like, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know, I'm saying yes, I am suspicious when somebody that we're looking up to as probably like the leading source of the new music is actually at a concert on the Vegas Strip and has been there for the whole thing and is celebrating it. There's at least a major blinder on. <laughs> Something is being missed. And, and when all that can be promoted, I'd say, watch out for wherever else that influence is being seen. And I'm here bringing this up now because again Jeroboam is leading people to just disregard the second commandment about means and methods and accessories in the introduction of this new worship and whatever else it means for where all we draw the lines may the Lord give us strength to not pass scriptural instruction concerning worship today and certainly I hope that we don't get to the place where we just say, be not conformed to this world is no big deal. Like, <clears throat> we don't know what the world is. We don't know what the world is. Look at the world. <laughs> the world defines what the world is. 
We know what their values are. We know what their ambitions are. We know what their agendas are. Look at how they present themselves. That's the world. That's worldliness. Not only does new and sinful worship violate the second commandment, but I want you to see a second quality to it tonight. And that is still right in verse number 28. This new worship directly appealed to people's convenience. Directly appealed to people's convenience. Again, verse 28, the king took counsel, made two calves of gold, and said unto them, this is the phrase we read it, but we didn't settle into it. Notice what he says. He said unto them, it is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. All right? Jerusalem is, <clears throat> is too far away now. And I mean, I, I mean, we're in this new nation too. Um, that's a different nation and if you're going to have to go all the way to Jerusalem for the feast that every male was required to be at three times a year and, and for the other occasions of worship. Jerusalem is too far. So what did he do? Verse 29. He set the one in Bethel, which was the southern kind of most point of this new kingdom of Israel. And the other he put in Dan up in the north. Okay, but the issue is that God had established what city as the place where he'd put his name and bless with his presence and command the people to go to. It was Jerusalem. And these extended worship celebrations three times a year, that's where the people were to go. But what the people are being offered is a more convenient opportunity. That's too much for you. That's demanding too much of you. Here, I'm going to make this way more convenient for you. Just go ahead and, and, and do this. It's, it's more convenient. Now, brother, we're, we're living in a day where there is big business in polls and surveys and market analysis. And if you're going to make a significant business investment, um, it seems like it'd be wise to pay attention to market analysis and surveys. But the fact is that advising churches about the way to start and build successful churches has also become big business. And eternal souls of people are now being viewed as consumers. And, and I can mention multiple arenas where this is the case. But... This particular dynamic of, of shaping things to people's conveniences and appetites seems to have a great deal to do with the musical choices of today. I know I'm honing in on this one because of where we're at. There would be other examples we could talk about. But, but when CCM began as a movement, I was a boy, and it was very clearly the initial initial argument was very much the matter of evangelism. Okay, we had to attract the unsaved in by giving them their own music, and then we'd slip in some Christian words. And, and honestly, back in the beginning, the concept of slipping in Christian words was not an exaggeration. That would be a fair assessment. 
okay? In recent years, there has been a shift in the rationale. The rationale for pop sounds in worship has changed. Um, and I would even say that the content of the lyrics has changed. We just mentioned this one example of, of what people have said is much more biblically substantial. Okay, but the new rationale for, for doing this is not anymore for evangelism. And actually, you, you can hear broader evangelicals will actually say that doing that for evangelism is too pragmatic. Yeah, we shouldn't be selling the gospel. So to have a rock concert that all the teenagers would like and slip in, the, slip in some Bible for the sake of evangelism, well, that's like having all kinds of contests and this and that, and it's too pragmatic. It's below doing gospel work, doing evangelism. But what has changed is that the rationale is now we're going to use these pop sounds because we want, to, we want people to have at their disposal forms of communication they are familiar with um, to offer up their worship to God. They're familiar with the sounds of pop culture. It's the way they express themselves about every other part of their life. Which it really is, isn't it? People express nearly every part of their life through pop sounds in some way or another. So if we want them to be free in worship, we're going to have to give them the same forms for them to use. So it's shifted from evangelism to worship. We want to let them be free in their worship. And some of the same rationales involved in choices of architecture and the whole... Um, ambiance of the setting and dress and you know things like if they come into a building that is like no other building they frequent and and they encounter people with maybe some kind of more formal dress like stuff that they don't even own and and then the music is like nothing that they've ever heard how are they going to be comfortable enough to worship I mean, they're going to they're gonna take two steps in <clears throat> or be in one song or whatever it is, and they're going to be like, ah, oh, this is out of this world. I'm completely uncomfortable. How are they going to worship? But in some cases, the rationale is extended all the way out to preaching. And I want to take it there so that we help evaluate, so that we can evaluate it out there a little further. A leading religious pollster actually wrote, listen, we have to remember a fundamental of Christian communication. The audience, not the message, is sovereign. Now hear that again. We have to remember a fundamental of Christian communication. The audience, not the message, is sovereign. Now, I'm blown away by that entire statement. I can't believe that he actually added Christian in there. Okay, maybe there's a setting where the audience is the defining factor of your, of your communication. <clears throat> but brethren, in Christian communication, the audience is not sovereign. 
Here, here is the scripture's admonition to a young preacher. Think about this. 2 Timothy 4, you don't need to turn. But Paul said to Timothy, I charge thee before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the quick and the dead at his appearing in his kingdom. Now, do you know who God's going to judge when he comes? Well, he's going to judge every man. But brethren, that specific context is you preachers understand this. That there is an audience that is not sitting in your pew, but there's an audience that is watching from heaven. There is a God in heaven. There is a Lord Jesus Christ whose word is in the book that you hold in your hands. And you're supposed to be his herald. And he's going to judge the living and the dead preachers when he comes. And because he's going to do that, here's what the preacher's supposed to do. Preach the word. Be instant in season, out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with all longsuffering and doctrine. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but shall, after their own lust shall heap to themselves teachers having itching ears, and they shall turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned unto fables. That very passage anticipates seasons where the church, the visible church, is going to be full of people that don't want to hear faithful preaching. I mean, it anticipates that. But even when that's the case, the preacher is to recognize there is a sovereign head of the church, the Lord Jesus Christ, and so he's supposed to keep heralding forth his message regardless of the audience. And it's the same thing said to the prophets in the Old Testament. Whether they hear or whether they forbear. <clears throat> whether their faces, he says to Ezekiel, look hard or soft. He even says whether thorns or briars be apart. They get so upset, they decide they're going to take you to task. Well, he said, don't be as rebellious as that rebellious house. You preach my words regardless of audience reaction. Well, brethren, when, when we adjust our worship style, and I, I'm, I'm talking even broader than just music, but when we adjust our, the whole approach to our worship, and we adjust our, our, our worship style to sinful consumers we run the risk of making accommodations that that at once both offend god and end up leaving the sinner still in his sin and again the bible is clear as you know that all of us are sinners dominated by the flesh and the appetites and the flesh answers to a world that is under the influence of the devil and I'm not having this turn tonight because I had you turn last week, but 1 John 4 and verse 5, they are of the world, therefore speak they of the world, and the world hears them. Again, 
worldly styles connect with worldlings because they are worldlings. That's the point. We're going to have to stop here tonight, and I am sorry about that. I actually, when I decided to revisit the passage, I was hopeful I was going to try to capture it all in one message so we could go away with an entire package. We haven't even actually got to the root issue. Okay? But I would just say this from another vantage point. I am thankful we can stop here and just really emphasize this last truth. Because we can be making accommodations that at once offend God and at the same time leave the sinner in his sin because when we give people a skewed image of who God is and what God is really like, we're not just damaging, we're not just dishonoring God. But we're withdrawing faithful truth from the sinner who needs a right image of who God is. We don't develop our image of God through words alone. We don't express our affection toward God. And and honestly, we don't uh, express our affection toward anyone else for that matter with words alone. Because even amongst people, we're hearing words, but we're also watching. What are we watching? I mean, we could be talking about watching actions outside of it, and, but we're also even watching body language. We're looking at face. We're looking at everything that's going on. I'm trying to read even maybe the intensity of what was just said by what I'm seeing. And, and that's true about all of our communication, the words God has revealed about himself and what pleases him are central. But poetry and different genres and even figures of speech for dramatic effect extend beyond words to our imaginations. And God has ordained the use of music and the arts as part of our ministry and part of our worship because they help stir and carry and communicate motions of the soul that bare words don't. That's why the style, the aura, the accessories utilized, that's why they are all critical. It's all part of it. Our first fall here in the upstate um, I went to Memorial Stadium, okay, more popularly known as, okay, Death Valley, okay, people, they hardly know it's Memorial Stadium, right? And I have to admit, I went um, when Clemson was playing Furman, and the tickets were cheap, cheap, cheap. (laughs) Um, But I experienced what um, some have described as the most exciting 25 seconds in college football. Is is the whipped-up frenzy 
associated with Clemson Tiger football? Is that supposed to be our model for worshiping the God of the Bible? Sometimes people say, you know, we should get as excited when our pastor preaches a great message as we do when our favorite team scores a touchdown. And, and somebody said, well, I'm going to bring Gatorade and dunk him in it then next time. <laughs> okay. I, I'm not a big fan of those illustrations because th there, there's a category disconnect. Okay, the way we celebrate a football touchdown and the way we hear the scripture and, and receive it is, it, it's just at a different level. I understand what it's trying to promote, right? But, but you, can, you can whip up a crowd. And you get the pep band and you get all the right aura and sights and sounds and smells and all of that stuff. And is, is the whipped up frenzy of a rock concert. And again, and it's association. It's association with unrestrained, uncommitted lust. Is that supposed to be the model for our worshiping the God of the Bible? Our brethren, in, in promoting these models and incorporating these tricks of the trade, are we creating a false image of God for an entire generation and maybe generations to come? I think, I think we, in, you know, I'm, I'm touching on something completely different, but if we turn this in to a service where there's just clapping all the time and hooting and hollering and running the aisles and all that kind of stuff, we're getting closer to Clemson football. We do other things that are resembling the stage shows and the concerts and all of that, and we're we're modeling after the world. Either way, there could be more immorality and fleshliness associated with one than the other, but either way, we're creating a false image of God. Who is the God I answer to? What is the sin I need to be saved from? What would it look like to be a loyal disciple of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords? All of this is being adjusted by what people imagine about God, for good or bad. It's being adjusted by what people imagine about God through what's going on week after week after week after week in a service. And when Jeroboam made the adjustments he did, God charged him with damaging generations to come. That does, that can, and that does happen. Biblically faithful worship is not stifling, except maybe to the flesh. <laughs> but by God's grace, over the long haul, biblically faithful worship is freeing and saving, and it is truly God-honoring. And again, whatever else, wherever else we land at drawing some applications... May God give us grace to be vigilant, and may he be pleased to move in our midst freely by his spirit to turn us to him. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? And I don't know what may be on your heart to talk to the Lord about tonight.
but I just want to give some silent space to do that. <laughs> 